So they take extreme risks to engage in these types of behavior. But are there other things that they're looking for where they identify one child or adolescent over another? When the internet came about, it gave the offender a great tool. Two came forward in your community, which means lots of them did not. I've had experience with arresting about 32 teachers. And now, the Safety Zone. Welcome to the Safety Zone. I'm here with Mike McCarty and our special guest, James McLaughlin. So our talk today is an interesting one. James McLaughlin has had a distinguished long career in law enforcement, starting out as a patrol officer and being promoted to lieutenant and specifically spending a vast amount of his career concentrated on sex crimes and especially sex crimes against children. And that included, too, in 1995, Jim being one of a small few across the nation that started investigating Internet sex crimes and solicitation of children. So we're just so thrilled to have Jim here today. And Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you because you know Jim and his background. And so we can just get right into the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome, Jim. I think I met Jim 15 years ago or so. I had gone to New Hampshire to speak as part of a federal law enforcement training center program on domestic violence prevention. And Jim was part of the New Hampshire, I think, Attorney General's Office task force. And so we go back a long time. We, uh, Jim taught some classes for me years ago. And there's really nobody that I've ever met anywhere across the United States that has spent as much time as Jim has working child sex abuse online cases. So, Jim, welcome. We're glad to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. And if you don't mind, just you framed for me years ago that you didn't necessarily set out to be a child sex abuse detective. Could you kind of give our listeners a little insight into how you got involved in this to begin with? Well, I think like anyone, I had a natural aversion to getting involved in sex crimes to begin with. Starting back when I was in the Marine Corps as a military policeman, and I was called to the scene of a missing female captain. And I eventually located her body and found that she was naked on the side of the road and had been strangled. And at that time, there wasn't an awful lot written about sexual violence. Men Who Raped by Nicholas Grote didn't come out until about 1979. But I learned enough during that early investigation that it, it just was so upsetting. It was something to be avoided and was hard to deal with. Uh, after leaving the Marine Corps, I went to Keene, New Hampshire, which is a very beautiful place to live if you've ever been here. And after being a patrol officer for three or four years, I was started to get involved in some sex crime investigation. And then in 1988, I became a detective. And because I was the lowest guy of tenure within that body, I was sent to investigate or to learn to investigate child sexual abuse cases. So I, I thought I was being punished in a way. Uh, I went up and took mm -hmm. the course, which was about two weeks long. And it, they had two victims, one man and one woman, who were victimized as children. And they told us about how horrible it was for them and all the negative sequelae that resulted throughout their life. And I thought that really caught my attention. And I said, if we can do anything in law enforcement to intervene and to stop that from occurring, it was good work. So I went back to college, got a degree in psychology, 
I went to the University of Alabama and learned about child maltreatment, and then I got a master's degree in, in uh, criminal justice and child maltreatment just to educate myself. And that education was more in the private sector and through mental health organizations than it was at law enforcement at the time. But just learning how to uh, interview children and to understand their victimization, to understand how offenders go about grooming children and victimizing them and, and avoiding detection started a lifelong pursuit for me. I remember you telling me that after you came back from that initial training, you were so, I don't know if the right phrase is kind of fired up or energized, that you went out and started speaking with all these groups in your community. And all of a sudden, you saw these disclosure rates going up in your community. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, that was back in the late 1980s, and rates were quite high at that time. But we started to get involved in looking at every child that ran away, every child that was involved in truancy, involved in drug abuse, was potentially someone that we should be reaching out and interviewing with the thought that they may have a sexual abuse in their history. As a result, we started to get disclosures from children that we otherwise wouldn't have come across, and we started to investigate those cases to the point where we had at one point, one out of every 400 males in our county was either convicted or in prison for child victimization. And it was only after that years of that type of work that we showed a decline in, in our uh, victimization rates. Mm. So that was a real and, proactive uh, approach that you took, Jim. We even did something rather unusual. And I, I don't know if I've seen it duplicated before. We went on a talk show locally in Cheshire County, and we spoke directly to sex offenders, asking them to surrender themselves for treatment. We had a connection with a local treatment provider. And as a result of that radio show, we got two people to step forward and to seek out treatment that otherwise wouldn't be involved. So we had a lot of novel approaches that help the community. And that's amazing because we don't often think of utilizing the media that way. And yet having that approach really was brilliant to to see what that could do. Well, when, it, when we first started, we recognized quickly that what we know about child sexual abuse is the result of those people that are brave enough to come forward and information collected from sex offenders that were caught or arrested. That's a subgroup. The vast majority of victimization goes undetected. So we don't really know if the knowledge base that we have is total or just an accurate subset of what actually occurs within our communities. And as you talk about treatment, you know, historically, I look at sex offenders and I dealt specifically only with adult sexual abuse. And in that area, when you talk treatment, what's what's the treatment outcomes look like? You know, two guys come forward in that community. Is there successful treatment opportunities for child sex abusers? Well, they don't really look at it as a treatment being successful so far as a, a cure. They look at it as giving the tools necessary for offenders to recognize the cognitive distortions that they have, the ability for them to go out and sexually abuse a child and not not to get caught, these types of things that offenders, for the most part, have to learn how to avoid situations that result in their offending against children. The, uh, most offenders recognize, at least the healthy ones do, that they're never going to be cured of that pre prevalection to engage in that type of behavior. And so as you talk about, you brought it up twice, this avoidance 
of detection. You're talking two came forward in your community, which means lots of them did not. So avoiding detection. If I'm listening to this, I'm a church, I'm a youth serving organization or a, or a school system. What are you talking about when you're talking avoiding detection? What are some of the things they do? Well, a lot of offenders, they, they engage in victims in isolation. They don't want to be observed along with the child. They'll take extra steps to, to avoid detection in the community. They, they realize that people now have a hypervigilance about people having one-on-one relationships. That's what they, when the internet came about, it gave the offender a great tool because it allowed him to seek out victims in other communities where he isn't as well known. He wouldn't be as identifiable. So they're constantly trying to engage children in a way that they're not going to be detected by other adults or other supervisors that they may come in contact with to, let's say, an organization. At the same time, they're also looking at ways to avoid detection through the people that they victimize. And just to give you an example, one offender used to involve his victims when they started to get older and outside of his target range. He would get them involved in seducing younger victims so that he could hold that over their head and threaten them with possible arrest in identification. So he would have a routine of, of giving them feelings of guilt and dread as he moved them out and moved younger victims in. Wow. Mm. Sounds a lot like mm. the Epstein series I watched on yes. Netflix. Where Yes. And when we talk about this, you brought up the use of the internet. You spent, how many years did you spend as a detective on the internet, posing as a 14, 15, 13, whatever year old boy and actually targeting sex offenders online. I, I spent about 15 years doing it in a full-time basis and then an additional three or four years on a part-time basis. If I'm a parent and I have no basis of knowledge here, I don't understand. And clearly the proliferation in apps and all the different social media platforms and everything today, even different than when you left this, Jim. What's the danger lurking out there for parents today? Originally, when we used to have prevention information for parents, there was absolutely no scientific basis for it. And you can see that in the evolution of the information. If you look back, we used to talk about the location where the, where the uh, computer would be located within the home was so important. Of course, devices now are so mobile, that device is no longer helpful. We really crank parents up on their their child being identified, and that is spread throughout the time so that even seeing a local news coverage, you'll see what the pictures of children are blurred out. And that's the origin of, of that fear. It was never based in science. In fact, just the opposite. A child being victimized on the internet where they accidentally disclosed who they were was an, an event that had never occurred. Most children, sadly, are very active in their exploitation, and especially when you're dealing with adolescents. Younger children obviously receive a great deal of parental supervision, and they're more apt to respond to that favorably to parents. But as our children, once they get to the ages of 12 to 16, that are at extreme risk on the internet because of developmentally, they're identifying, getting involved in identity, getting involved in autonomy, and pushing away from parents, which is the most difficult time and the most vulnerable time for our children to be online. And I tell parents quite often that there's no software, there's no apps that are going to be really useful. That prevention is an ongoing situation between them and their children. 
and it involves conversation, comfort between child and parent so far as being able to discuss things and to be involved in each other's lives. As children, if you back engineer some of the victimization that we've seen, that are children at risk, the ones that are isolated from their parents, isolated from their peers, involved in some other issues such as depression or other other uh, situations that make them especially vulnerable to finding people on the internet that they can engage with that meets those interpersonal needs that we all have. And that answers Part of the question I was thinking, Jim, is how kids are identified when they're being groomed or when the perpetrator, whether it's online or, or even in an organization or community aspect, what are they looking for? And I know you just gave some great answers, but are there other things that they're looking for where they identify one child or adolescent over another? Yeah, well, one offender told me that the most important thing was common ground, and that's how people establish relationships. So he's going to establish common ground, he or she going to establish common ground with children so they can get that initial introduction, followed by they try to explore and look for children that lack parental interaction because that way that they know that the child isn't going to be supervised and that they may be potentially able to isolate that child and engage in a friendship that they'll be able to exploit through actually meeting the child in person. One sex offender told me it was like junk mail. He says junk mail comes all the time and the majority, some 95% of people throw it away. 5% of the people respond to it and they buy the product. That's why the junk mail keeps coming. He said he was like junk mail. He sent out a hundred different solicitations and the vast majority of children were going to turn him down, but it was those vulnerable children he could find by use of the internet that was able him to be successful. Oh, wow. Well, and Jim, you, you relate a story once just to show kind of in the mindset how determined these sex offenders are. I believe he rode a bicycle from, started in Illinois. Could you relay a little bit about that story to show how focused these sex offenders are on gaining access to our children? Yeah, but we had the experience of arresting over 850 offenders from all 50 states and 17 foreign countries that would uh, put great effort into manipulating a child for that eventual meeting. And the example you talked about was a guy that was on parole, had just gotten out of prison, living in halfway houses. He stole the bicycle, pedaled across the country, stopping at homeless shelters, getting online, telling us what where he was, and eventually traversed the country to come all the way up uh, to the Northeast. We've had others, of course, fly in from foreign countries. We've had many that we would set up to watch where they were going to meet the child, let's say at McDonald's, and we would learn quickly that we would do an observation post. And sometimes they would drive up next to us, park next to us. There we are to Texas with, with ties on and black vests. And they, would, they wouldn't even look over and see us sitting there waiting for them. So they were very transfixed on meeting that child. In fact, I don't think, except for twice, where we ever stood up, they would always show up. One, we didn't show up because we had two feet of snow, and another didn't show up because we had arrested his roommate the day before. Oh. And you mentioned, Jim, that you guys had asked a question 
uh, maybe repeatedly to a lot of these offenders, what was the likelihood when they showed up that it really was going to be a child and not somebody else? Yeah, I, w- I would speak to them and I tried to learn from them. In fact, even before going onto the internet, I used to go to the state prison to talk to sex offenders and to, to understand how they engage in these types of behaviors, how they justify their, their acts. And they're extremely driven. If they put as much energy into exploiting children into other areas of their life to be extremely successful. In fact, some of them would talk about that all day long, all their waking hours, all they do is obsessively think about the sexual contact with the child. And uh, they would come and they would say, there's a possibility. It's a 50-50 chance. I may get arrested today. I may not. Some, I, I know that we had taken down. One in particular had a loaded weapon and a suicide note. If he saw us coming, he was going to shoot himself before we could reach him. So they take extreme risks to engage in these types of behavior because of the fantasy fuel disorder that pedophilia and hebophilia are. Speaking of that, Jim, what, for a better lack of words, is there a general profile of someone that is engaged in this activity? You know, are, are there certain earmarks? Is it Could it just be the Joe Q sitting next to me at a cubicle in my office who seems to be a normal guy? Is there any kind of profile? Well, early on, there were a lot of pretty famous people in our profession that wrote up profiles. Nicholas Grove came up with the fixated, a regressed offender. And then Ken Lanning and Park Dietz came up with uh, another uh, typology. And these are great learning devices so far as you could go out and tell people about here is a spectrum of human behavior that people will engage in. But they really fell short when you back engineered the people that you were coming in contact with through arrest to see that they had shared characteristics with a lot of the subtypes that were in these typologies. The thing about this is we're talking about human behavior. And although they engage in the same human behavior, they get there by different paths. Their own personal lives are different. Their own victimization or lack of victimization. They have a lot of differences in their makeup and how they engage in their behaviors. Some are extremely prolific. Others aren't. If you look at the way they engage children and groom children, there's some similarities. But how successful they are, there's a lot of different factors. For instance, if they're uh, drug or alcohol dependent, their cognitive level of development. For instance, you're not a great seduction child abuser if you don't have good communication skills and, and, and good cognition. Others that don't have those abilities are more apt to use a force or, or bribery with their victims. So you see different levels of sophistication depending upon what skills they bring to the table. If you're looking for a profile, it's not so much the individual because I could show you hundreds of pictures and you would see good looking people, you would see awful looking people that look like a pedophile poster child type of thing. But everything in between, it's a great continuum. You have female offenders, male offenders, you have people that I had one rapist who was 92 years old, and another person who was showing extreme violence, sexual violence at age 13. So you're going to have a, a large variety of people that come. So any particular profile is always problematic because it creates a situation Mm -hmm. for you to say, well, this person doesn't meet the profile. In fact, uh, early early on, we'd make arrests. There was attorneys who would try to fight a case by saying that their client didn't meet a particular profile, which the courts quickly recognized that there was no 
actual profile that met the legal standards. So it's an interesting, as you talked about, that whole spectrum as we're talking to organizations that trying to empower them to recognize some signs. There's a lot that goes in in our culture to socializing us to believe that, you know, people that do really bad things always look really scary. Have you got some examples of professional offenders that just is a, kind of give a paint a picture of, of you cannot group anybody into a single category of what they may look like in terms of who an offender is. No, I mean, I, I've had a lot of examples over the years. For instance, I had one particular guy who would be online and he would uh, chat with me for like three or four minutes and he'd leave for 10 minutes, come back for three or four m- minutes, exchange child pornography, and he'd be off and on the internet all, all day long. And what it turned out to B was a doctor from Ohio that was seeing patients. And right from the doctor's office, he's sending us child pornography. We've had, I believe, I've had experience with arresting about 32 teachers, people that are in our our schools Mm -hmm. teaching our children, let alone that they're sexually aroused by our kids is extremely disturbing. I've arrested a guy that was a sexual offender treatment provider. He's supposed to be treating sex offenders, but also engaging the exact same behaviors. We've had people in the military, uh, firemen, policemen that we've arrested. And then we've had people that are homeless that have access to computers. We've had uh, people from the military, all four branches that we've engaged in. Uh, So you really can't come up with a a clear profile of who engages in this type of behavior by occupation. You mentioned some red flags. What are some isolation was clearly one you had mentioned, but you're talking about now using the internet to avoid detection with isolation. But from an organizational standpoint, what are some things? Because one, any one flag by itself doesn't make somebody an abuser. So I know we have to be cautious of seeing one flag and now all of a sudden we're starting to label everybody that's wanting to work with children as something they're not necessarily. I mean, how do you balance understanding some of these red flags, knowing when some intervention probably needs to happen? If you could just kind of help us with a little bit of that. Yeah, I I think it really depends upon person that's coming across the red flag about their level of knowledge, it's going to be quite different. In fact, you think about it, child protection, when they go out and they're responding to red flags, I would say the majority of the cases don't result in a disclosure. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that the child wasn't abused, but just that we weren't able through our methods to get the child to disclose at that time. Red flags are going to be different. It depends upon who you are. I'll give you an example. I went to a video store, if you remember when those used to be around. And I saw a guy that was not the child's parent. He was a 12-year-old boy. And he said to the boy, go ahead and pick out any film that you want. Well, that's nothing a parent would ever say. And the child went around and got the, got the movie. And he said, okay, well, let, we'll get that. Just don't tell your mother. So, I mean, to me, those are red flags. And I, I followed them out. I got the license plate of the car. I ran it and realized that... This guy lived alone, he, so he wasn't the child's parent. We were able to identify that child, and that child eventually disclosed sexual abuse by that person. 
Well, that's a pretty thin case and typically one you're not going to see unless you have some experience in the field. But some some red flag, of course, there's a lot of list of fl- red flags with kids so far as depending upon the age of the children. You get anything from the child begins to socially isolate, self-abuse, enuresis. You have a lot of different signs that children may be having sexual or physical abuse in the home that teachers and our educational systems are quite aware of and make reports. The adolescents are the more troubling ones because they tend not to show red flags to adults, but they show it to their peers. And their peers become overwhelmed with the information, then make those reports on behalf of that exploited child. If I was to say some signs of the adults or the the abuser, obviously having someone that tries to isolate the child, one that tries to to, uh, meet the child away from, let's say, the recreational area that they're involved in or the institution that they're involved in, seeing that individual alone with that child in a vehicle, seeing that person spending an extra amount of time, seeing that person buying gifts for that child, Things of that nature or having uh, guided conversations is also another kind of red flag within an institution that should bring that person to your attention. It may not require a report, but it requires additional monitoring to watch that person as as they uh, are acting within that organization. Jim, I have a question. On the, the age of the victims, What is there an average age? Is there a, a, an age group that is more likely? Just in your experience with all, you know, all the years that you've done this, what have you seen in that respect? It's more dependent upon the offender, what they, what they target. And even then, that's a little bit skewed because it, it doesn't allow for the fact that they're successful or unsuccessful who've so gaining access to the particular child that they are attracted to. If you think about it, and, and uh, there was a guy named Michael Cito up in Canada that wrote an article about this, and it caused some concern when he first published. He said that a, that an offender's child pornography collection was a better indicator of what he was attracted to than his actual victims. And if you think about it, the child pornography he was collecting was specific to his deviance, where he wasn't always successful in finding a child that matched that fantasy that he has. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the average age of a victim, it's really not helpful because it depends upon what the offender finds mm-hmm. attracted. You have some offenders that are strictly prepubital, and if they are, they'll, they'll more easily will cross over from male to female children and engage both. Whereas if those that like the onset of puberty or pubescent very seldom will go from one gender to the other. The other odd thing about offenders I think you need to mention is the work of Gene Abel, which was in the late 86, 88 time period, where he said that most sex offenders had multiple paraphilic behaviors. It wasn't just offending against children. In fact, an adult rapist may easily also be involved in child molestation. Someone who's involved years ago with obscene telephone calls, which has kind of disappeared, or indecent exposure may also be involved in child molestation or something like frottage, dry rubbing, these guys in shopping centers that will bump up against people in public places. It goes undetected. But those additional paraphilic behaviors sometimes are key in identifying offenders because they are the type of cases that people can easily just bypass and not look at that person as being dangerous, but just as a nuisance. But it may be an indication that they're also involved in child exploitation. Oh, that's interesting. With these offenders, Jim, and you've interviewed so many and worked so many cases, 
Do you see a, a long history of volunteerism, putting themselves in positions to gain access to children? What's your experience on that side? Well, it's 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 twofold. I mean, some offenders will never volunteer with youth organizations because of the zeitgeist that we have now, because they're absolutely panicked about being identified as with those organizations. Sadly, at the same time, because people are so suspicious, a lot of volunteers that would be great volunteers won't come forward because they don't want to be perceived as being attracted to that type of work because of the children involved. But some offenders, you have to also recognize the fact they never have any victims. They're sexually aroused by children. They interact with children, but they never cross that boundary. And they're able to to do so because of the fear of sanctions, the fear of loss of employment, the fear of loss of family. So there are individuals that identify through mental health, when they take mental health, that there are people that don't have actual victims to people that have absolutely no control over themselves that they, with children, are going to cross those boundaries, even if they haven't put the work into seducing those victims or to avoid detection. Uh, a lot of those are in prisons, of course, and get caught quite easily. So from an organizational standpoint, strong policies, screening programs, vetting programs, are these a big deterrent to a lot of these offenders? And I know it's it's a broad range, but yep. you know, as we're working with these organizations, how does that well, work? Organizations have a due diligence to check out volunteers. Of course, now with the internet, it's becoming, it, although it's easier for sex offenders to use the internet, it's also easier for us to do background checks on individuals. Individuals that change their names, especially females, can do so quite easily. So it's just doing a simple internet check sometimes isn't good enough. If you think about it, some people will give up their first name and use their middle name as their first name. So they like to switch things up. That's kind of a red flag when we see that happening when people don't readily identify the fact that they're doing so. The sexual offender registration first came up. I, I got it passed in our state because an offender, when I arrested him, the first thing he said, he goes, I'm going to now I have to move again because they like to operate from a location of not being known. The other odd thing is that mm-hmm. many, many states have annulment laws that deal with erasing sex offenders' histories. The good thing about the Internet is it doesn't have no annulment. The original arrest in that newspaper is going to be there for, forever. So that's kind of a assist for us when we do these background checks of looking for those arrests and and rooting out that material. Looking at people's occupation is interesting because you find some people are moving from place to place with no explanation and you contact those former employees and they give you that line that they they can't answer any questions except whether or not they'll re-employ that individual. It's, It's not necessarily a red flag in and of itself, but if you see a history of short-term employment, that, that's something that we like to, to look into because many offenders continuously move about once they become detected or they fear they're going to be detected. Hmm. Jim, there was a couple of cases that just really stood out to you and, and just why and, and how it impacted you. Well, I, the cases that impact, impact me are, are odd is that what, I remember one time being in an emergency room with a sex offender that had uh, poured gasoline on himself and he, and he lit a match and set himself on fire and then quickly gave up and jumped into a local stream. We were up at the ER with him and a, one of the nurses came over 
and grabbed my hand and just said, I just want to thank you for helping me out when I was a little girl by arresting my father. And that, that, that got me, you know, that got me because I didn't register with me right away about the impact you have on people's lives. I had arrested her dad for incest within the home and he he left the home in, in New Hampshire. He spent 15 years in jail, but it allowed her and her siblings to grow up unmolested and have a healthy and productive life. So in Lawrence, mm-hmm. Wilson, you have that ability to have that impact. It's, it's a great thing. I, I also think about cases that go on undetected for a lot of time. You know, a guy that had a business in one of our surrounding towns that attracted young boys, and he was able to molest upwards of about 30 or 40 kids before he was detected. That just bothered me that how you could have that much effect within a small community go undetected for such a length of time. He, he even went so far as to have abused a local judge's son, a, a police officer's son, and take that chance. And his position was those were especially nice trophies for him because they were extremely risky for him to engage in. He was very much stimulated mm-hmm. by the taboo nature uh, of the behavior, but also the fear of being incarcerated was uh, thrilling for him at the same time. So you'd come across individuals like that, that once you were able to intervene and to protect society by having them removed, it was it was a nice feeling to have and gave you purpose in your profession. Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, Jim, with your career, I, I know that I, I mean, any age, it doesn't matter what the person's age is, is horrible and, and heinous, but I do get just, you know, teary and revolted when I hear of situations, whether it is in the family or churches, where just little babes, little toddlers, preschoolers have been sexually assaulted and it's always shocking to me. Is that is that still a is that abnormal? Is that becoming much more of a known part of this whole aspect of uh, grooming and, and the perpetrators? If you think about it, within the last, I think starting in about 1995 and coming forward, we've had a big reduction in the amount of sexual abuse of children across our country. In fact, it was up to 30 to 40 percent reduction. And I think it had a lot to do with all the work that was occurring, but uh, but societal-wise, too, if you think about it, large sentences where they were keeping offenders that once they were identified and taken away and locked up, they were protecting them about them reoffending against against our kids. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I think things are changing over time. Of course, then the internet mm-hmm. came around and has maybe caused a lot of issues, not only for children, but for adults, too, if you... And you don't see much publicized mm-hmm. about the victimization of adults on the internet, of everything from homicide on on down that the internet has brought us. But it's it's an ever changing ground for all of us. Mm-hmm. Jim, what a godsend you are! I mean, like you said, I mean, it's such an important work. At the same time, it would be an extremely difficult. You're you're, you're seeing a big chunk of society that is not pleasant. That is just horrific. Well, you know, you know, it's also strange that I've had many offenders thank me for arresting them over the years, which is kind of odd if you think about mm-hmm. it. The fact is that many offenders absolutely hate the fact that they're motivated to have sex with children. They know it's wrong. 
a lot of them do have some some guilt over the behavior, but is soon replaced through an urge to do it again. But some of them that went to prison, that got out and came back into our communities, have, have actually thanked us for arresting them, which I, I think is mm-hmm. goes towards some of these people mm-hmm. can't be healthy in our communities and come back in. Uh, others, of course, have mm-hmm. a, aren't, aren't so uh, fortunate and have to be kept away. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with Jim, thank you for okay. for what you've done and what you continue to do. I know you're still working, right, as an investigator, not with the police department, correct, but with... Yeah, I, I, I mostly do consultation and I, I, I get involved in doing uh, wiretaps and that type of thing. It's kind of interesting, but... Uh, I still consult on child abuse cases here uh, locally. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your knowledge, your experience, your heart. Thank you for having me. And honestly, I I have to say I I've learned a lot today, you know, things that were actually very surprising to me, and that's part of what we're doing is educating people on this aspect. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.